Welcome to the Aporia podcast. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you'll love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hello, welcome to the Aporia podcast. I'm Noah Carl, and joining me today is Richard Hanania. He is the founder and president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, and as of this conversation, an uncancelled person. His latest book is Origins of Woke, which will be the topic of our conversation. Welcome, Richard. Glad to be here, Noah. Thanks. Okay, so why don't you uh, explain why you wrote this book? Yeah, so I mean, I got, you know, sort of, I'm, I've been following this wokeness debate for a very long time. And like many people, I'm very, uh, you know, just bothered by it, bothered by it in the sense that it's, you know, bad for civilization, bothered by it because it's anti-truth and unmasculine and, you know, just really annoying. I mean, what like these people believe and what we're all forced to say and what you, kinds of things you get canceled for. Um, and I, you know, sort of wanted to know just like sort of as a scientific question where this uh, came from. Um, I had a background in um, law. I'd gone to law school, though I never practiced. So I knew a little bit about civil rights law. And when I learned about it, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, I was pretty impressed by the extent to which sort of government forces race and sex consciousness onto um, institutions. And like the degree, the degree to which this doesn't get um, much attention while we're always debating wokeness. We're always debating wokeness as, you know, uh, somebody crying about somebody hurting their feelings or uh, some group doing this or, you know, some activist organization saying something crazy. Uh, but, you know, this really always seemed to me to be a policy debate. And then so as I started digging into like a, what a lot of legal scholars and what a lot of sociologists were saying um, and what the history of all of this was, I saw that there was, you know, a plausible causation story to tell. Um, that you can you could tell like you know government did this and then these this happened to institutions and then sort of the cultural uh, cultural effect is downstream and you could sort of trace this uh, you can see it in sort of chronologically how things happen uh, so these ideas have been floating around in my head for a while and I um, wrote the uh, article uh, why is uh, everything liberal and the follow up woke institutions is just civil rights law uh, those got a, those got a lot of attention um, and then after that I said yeah it's probably a good idea to write the book. Um, and before we discuss the book itself, I wanted to ask you uh, this question. Not too long ago, you wrote an interesting essay on your Substack, The Case Against Most Books, which you yeah. basically argue that most books aren't worth reading. So, so why should people read yours? My book is, first of all, it's not as long as many books because I know that a lot of books are just fluff. That's one of my arguments against uh, a book. So it's uh, you know ten hours on the uh, ten hours on the uh, uh, Audible, um, which is you know less than most serious books, especially most history books, and it's only two, it's two hundred something in in hard copy. Uh, so I'm conscious of the idea that you shouldn't just fluff up your book with nonsense, right? So I'm giving you a lot and I'm giving it to you in, um, you know, not that many pages because I, you know, I want to be condensed and I, I, I care about the reader's time and I care about, you know, I think that the, you, you do have to like think about these things. Um, and so this, you know, when I wrote that article, I did say there's three um, exceptions. Uh, first of all, history books, because, you know, the increase in knowledge in history is linear, right? If you learn an equation or you learn some psychological fact, you know, reading 10 papers on the same thing might not help you, but reading 10 different history books, if they have different facts, um, you're going to get a fuller picture. So this is in part a history uh, book. Um, you know, uh, the second, you know, uh, another one is basically like books of historical importance. 
Um, you know, I hope this will be of historical importance because I think this is the best explanation of wokeness and we'll see, you know, the book is doing well. Hopefully, you know, it does better and it gets out there and these, uh, arguments become, you know, important out there. And then finally, there's, um, there's one, and you know, this is, uh, not very, it's not very humble to say this, but you know, there's a category of genius takes you on a journey. Somebody is really providing you an understanding that can help enrich your view of the world. Um, I won't say that that's me. Um, I think it's me. Um, but people can make that decision, you know, for themselves. Yeah. So, um, based on, based on my reading of the, of the introduction, the conclusion and the perusal of the other chapters and, uh, having, uh, read most of your Substack essays, I think this, this definitely is, is a book worth reading. Uh, and I, I say that as someone who largely subscribes to your view on, on reading books. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the parts that I read. So why don't you begin by, um, taking us right back to the civil rights act in mm -hmm. the U S yeah. So the Civil Rights Act, I mean, it's really like sort of the center of uh, American, um, you know, sort of the American civic religion, much more than the founding was. I was telling Razib on a podcast the other day. So, um, yeah, I mean, people were, you know, this is a recurring story in American history. There was concern about, you know, the status of black people in the South uh, from slavery, you know, slavery. Um, the Civil War obviously was over this. Um, and then 1950s sort of TV comes along and these, you know, there's these marches and, um, you know, Kennedy gets assassinated. That's the, that's the big one in 63. And so finally they do something about uh, something big on civil rights in 64. Um, and, you know, what people thought they were doing was they were banning discrimination. Um, intentional discrimination. So they were getting rid of the state-based uh, caste system in the South, um, the Jim Crow laws, and then also uh, enforcing non-discrimination onto the private sector. Um, and so, you know, it's clearly that that's what they want to do. Non-discrimination meant like classic non-discrimination, not statistical disparities um, that they considered that they, you know, that was some, an idea in the air and that was explicitly rejected. Um, and then sex just gets in there sort of on accident. I tell the story of like, there's a congressman who wants to der derail the bill. He puts a poison pill in there, which adds no discrimination on account of sex. This is before feminism. People think of the sixties. Feminism is really the late 1960s. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the race concerns came before that. Uh, and so like, you know, the idea that American society would have no distinction between men and women was seen as sort of absurd. It was actually, you know, there was laughter, you know, in Congress, he was, you know, sort of trolling with this amendment, but it ends up getting in there and it ends up, uh, it does end up passing. Um, and so that's how you get the ban on race discrimination. You get the ban on sex discrimination. You have something called Title IX in 1971, which applies uh, ban on sex discrimination to things that receive government funding. It was always like that for race, but it became like that for sex. Um, and so this is sort of like the, you know, this is like the or text of, you know, the, the sort of foundation of everything uh, that came after. And then from there, you get basically the, you know, the developments that I talk about in the rest of the book. Usually it's court decisions. Usually it's like administrators, it's uh, executive orders. Uh, these end up you know, reverberating through colleges, uh, through uh, corporations, and they end up ultimately remaking American society. So the the Civil Rights Act itself would seem to uh, uh, not allow the kinds of policies that have been implemented based on s later interpretations of the Civil Rights Act. So, how did how did the, those interpretations come to be? Yeah. So I mean the so yeah there was you know it says non you know discriminate on account of sex so that includes you know obviously it doesn't say don't discriminate against black people even though that was the the concern um that motivated the bill and you know it's a count of sex people are thinking about discrimination against women they're not thinking about discrimination against men but the way it's written it says you know 
it's a sex. It doesn't say against women. Um, and so how does it happen? I mean, it just, it just happens. I mean, so like the civil rights activists, they, they move from, uh, you know, they, they are, um, they go on and the next thing they want is equal representation. A lot of them probably, uh, you know, they were pushing for equal opportunity or uh, colorblindness in law as maybe as a tactical matter. They needed to, you know, uh, they needed to win over Congress and get the Civil Rights Act passed. Um, and then, you know, it automatically they go to quotas and they go to like the idea that if you give a test, it's racist. And the EEOC, um, the EEOC, which is the uh, government uh, agency um, uh, tasked with enforcing civil rights law, it it comes in and it's, of course, staffed by these, you know, left wing ideologues or people with connections to the civil rights movement. And they, um, you know, and they 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 are sympathetic. And so they start pushing this. They actually don't think. They think, you know, there's like a, you know, an internal uh, document from the EEOC where, they, you know, they, they say they don't think they can win in court because the law is obvious um, that, you know, it's about potential discrimination. And they say, you know, we're going to we're going to we'll just go to court, hopefully. Now, they go to court and they actually, you know, win um, in 1971 on uh, disparate impact uh, on, in the case of uh, uh, Griggs v. Duke Power Company. Um, and I think you have to understand this in larger context because it wasn't just that they did this, the civil rights act, there's something called the voting rights act in 1965. Uh, and you know, you could have, you, you could have written a book on, I mean, people have written a book on this. Um, it basically, it says, you don't take away people's right, uh, uh, you know, don't take away their uh, right to vote, you know, it's supposed to protect that. It ends up being interpreted as you have to draw districts of, uh, you know, black people are a majority. So black people can elect black officials. Like it becomes really absurd. I mean, it becomes, and sometimes it becomes like, oh, they need to be 60% because they're voting. It's so that you need 60% black. And this becomes something that's, you know, fought in the courts. They go tell the states, you know, what to do. And there, you know, there's a uh, school, you know, there's school busing, there's desegregation too, where like, it's not just, you know, schools have to be integrated. You have to like, if like the whites and blacks live in different areas, they have to be bused like, you know, across town. And this was crazy. I mean, this was like a big issue in America uh, in the 1970s. Um, and so like, you just sort of have to understand the sort of like the civil rights movement was like sort of this like mo moral tsunami, right? It was just like a revolution, how people were thinking. Um, and the law sort of just went out the window, just like, you know, courts and administrators were doing all kinds of crazy things. There was no um, uh, conservative uh, media back then. Um, you know, there wasn't really a mature conservative movement. So there was no, uh, uh, you know, there was grassroots, a lot of grassroots pushback. Um, but no institutionalized pushback. And, you know, that's how they were getting able to get away with it, you know, from the uh, time of the Civil Rights Act until about, you know, 1991, the Civil Rights Act, 1991, you know, less and less, right? 1980s, there's a pushback with Reagan. 1991, they get their Civil Rights Act. And then like after that, the developments, they mostly stop. I mean, there was the Title IX stuff in the Obama administration, but the developments are basically set because now you have a, you know, you have a conservative movement. You have the, you know, the, um, you have the uh, moving away from like the civil, the original um, generation of the civil rights activists. You have their descendants who don't have nearly as much uh, prestige. Uh, but the old stuff, you know, is sort of, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's become just, in, you know, in, enmeshed in the fabric of the law and, you know, people just forget about it and these aren't battles anymore. So in, on your reading of the evidence, most of the legal groundwork for wokeness was in place by the early 90s. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 91 was, I mean, really a lot of it was 1970s. Um, Duke, uh, we, uh, you know, the Griggs decision was in 71. Um, uh, the Philadelphia plan, which affirmative action for contractors, uh, that was also that was also 71 from the Nixon administration. Uh, so those were the big ones. Um, you know, 19, you know, they do um, 76. They, they make it uh, so that, you know, the Civil Rights uh, Attorneys Fees Awards Act. 
Uh, this is very obscure, but basically you get uh, you get uh, uh, f uh, paid your lawyer paid for if you win a civil rights case. 1991 adds punitive damages, so you don't even have to be damaged. Uh, court decisions throughout this time, you know, create a class action right. So yes, all the you know pretty much the big stuff. Uh, most of the big stuff is there by 1990. It's a lot of it's there in the 70s. It's basically set in 1991. Gender, some gender stuff come, does come along mm. in the Obama administration, especially trans stuff, the gay, uh, you know, a lot of the LGBT stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, there is a little bit of development there. But yeah, this is mostly, mostly old. Mostly we're just cruising on old laws and regulations and court decisions that nobody's revisited. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the interesting examples that you examine in the book. The word diversity, where, where does that come from? Uh, it comes from a court decision. It comes from uh, Baki versus uh, uh, Regents of the University of California. So in 78, uh, there's a Supreme Court decision where the, uh, uh, this guy is, um, you know, he's a white guy who doesn't get into medical school. Uh, the University of California, uh, Davis, um, they have a, uh, um, they have a, uh, you know, quota system where, you know, you get extra you know, points if you're black or whatever, or Hispanic. Um, and I don't think even Hispanic back then, it might've been, it might've been, it might've been Native American or something. And he, um, and, you know, he sues and, you know, there's like, there's a uh, one wing of the uh, court that it wants, that's conservative, that wants no affirmative action. Another one just wants to let them do quotas. And the quotas are justified on the grounds that to make up for past discrimination. Nobody's, nobody's really talking about diversity. That's barely mentioned in any of the court documents. Uh, there's a swing justice, uh, Justice Powell, um, who basically says no you know, you, affirmative action is okay. Quote, direct quotas are not, uh, but it can be diverse. You can have diversity as a plus factor. Um, and then the word diversity in the context of education only takes off after that court decision. You could see it being invented in real time. It's post hoc justification. Um, and you can, you know, I trace this in the book. And then the, you know, the interesting thing is like it, the SFFA v. Harvard case, um, which was just decided a few months ago, um, you know, the, you know, uh, some of the conservative opinions, they pointed out that the liberals weren't even talking about like diversity and they, you know, the dissents weren't even talking about diversity. The dissent wasn't even talking about diversity. It wasn't even talking about, you know, Asians who were discriminating. Against. All they talked about was disparities between blacks and whites. So we have this here, we have this, uh, uh, you know, 45 years later. And it's still like, we haven't forgotten. We know this is all about people feeling bad that whites are doing better than blacks and feeling guilt over the situation of black Americans. And we've, we've been speaking in diversity language for half a century, but like nobody forgot that's like actually what this is all about, which I, you know, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. I thought the, the section on diversity was very interesting. Uh, you quoted uh, an academic who'd looked into the history of the use of that word and had found no mentions or no significant mentions prior to the decision you just described, suggesting yeah. that our whole obsession with diversity goes back to the somewhat arbitrary decision of one lawyer. Um, yeah, exactly. Do we know much about that particular lawyer, about his background, his views? Oh, he's a Supreme Court Justice Powell. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we know about him. I mean, I, I didn't get you know, too deep into the literature about him personally. I don't know, like, if there's been anything written about, like, what he was thinking in this particular case. Yeah, it's just not something I, I really looked into. I was more interested in effects rather than his, you know, biography. I was just wondering if uh, if one could trace it back even further to something in his in his uh, over, childhood. Over yeah, a... like the Domino's meme where you like one small thing happens. Yeah, exactly. And just, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so he make he makes a particular decision in that case, and then and then, as you say, several decades later. Every university, every major university in the country has a center for 
promoting diversity or a bureaucracy for doing that. What about standardized testing? Where, where did the attacks on that come from? Yeah, so this was the already mentioned uh, uh, Griggs decision in '71. Uh, basically, it's just you know it's it's very simple. Blacks didn't you know they tried to have an IQ test for hiring. Uh, blacks didn't do well on it, um, and then the court says you know there has to be a business necessity. So like it's not illegal to do anything that has a disparate impact. Uh, but the burden of proof shifts on you, the employer, uh, to prove that, you know, you need it for your business. And what that exactly means is also, you know, it depends on the court and it's interpreted in different ways. And this is what lawyers do. They get into, they get into the weeds, you know, the definition of business necessities, its own, you know, entire topic. Um, and so, yeah. And so like, you know, there's data on like the 1970s, like corporations do move away from, uh, standardized testing. And it's especially bad in government um, by the uh, late 1970s. You know, there's just really battles within the government because there's a, there's a, uh, some, uh, you know, there's a, a tradition of, um, of, you know, uh, not, you know, sort of nonpartisan, nonpolitical hiring based on merit. And, you know, the people who, uh, you know, the sort of the government, the factions of the government that are still in that tradition are fighting um, with the EEOC and the civil rights people who say, this is like the big thing that's standing in the way of equality. And so this is like, you know, an, a battle within the government uh, by the late 1970s, the you know the civil rights people uh, win during the Carter administration, and they basically get rid of all standards and you know uh, federal government hiring. You can have you can still have you know college degrees, um, but like yeah, I mean the you know it's it's really I mean the American government is very very diverse, and you know the federal government it doesn't often doesn't function uh, very well, and you can really trace it directly to civil rights law. Has anyone been able to show quantitatively that the quality of administration deteriorated at that time? Yeah, I mean, I've looked, I looked for something like that. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to measure and have something consistent over time. I didn't find, you know, anything anecdotally. I mean, you can look at like trust in government or like believe in mm. government can do the right thing or even like, you know, political, like how much people, you know, are willing to create new programs or get, uh, delegate power to the federal government. It's certainly gone down over time and just sort of anecdotally, like, you know, and what's happened in American culture. But like, I haven't found any more rigorous way to test this. So if I were to set up a business in America today, let's say a consulting business, and I had on my website, we select our employees solely based on the results of this IQ test. No, that's, you can't do that. What would yeah. happen to me? Yeah. I mean, the you know, so if you have, if you meet the threshold for the civil rights act, you have to have 15 employees. Uh, so, you know, you're exempted if you're uh, under that, um, you know, you'd probably, well, I mean, it also depends on other things too. Like if you're so smart, like the, you know, it's, there's only so many civil rights lawyers and bureaucrats. So what they do is they go after the big guys. So if you're a nobody, um, they probably ignore you. You probably don't have money to be sued. Um, imagine, you know, you're Walmart um, and you put that, oh yeah, you're, you become the target. You'll probably be, you know, you'll have lawsuits that by the end of the day, you'll have investigations from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, and you, if you have government contracts, they could also be potentially uh, endangered. Um, so it comes, it comes out like weapons. disparate impact. What's that? Uh, they would be invoking concepts like disparate impact. They would. The lawsuits would be uh, doing that. The EEOC would be doing that. The uh, the you might be in violation of like you're, for contracting. You're supposed to have an affirmative action plan. So if you don't have that, um, you know you could be in, in trouble with that. And you know the state could go state level too. If you have contracts or trying to do business in New York or California, you might have uh, trouble there. Um, yeah, I mean, it comes at you from all directions. You at least you might like be able to get away with it. You'd want to be more. Um, uh, circumspect in how you speak about it. 
you might not want to put that on your website. You, you could have that practice and, you know, potentially you can get away with it and potentially people don't notice and they come after you. Uh, being outspoken about these things is, uh, is bad, uh, is, you know, is uh, probably a bad idea. And probably this is how like wokeness works, right? Because it, it, in fact, like even if when you need to, or when you believe in merit, you have to be silent about it and, you know, not draw the attention of sort of the civil rights establishment. Uh, so you can see how this can affect the culture. Why did uh, standardized testing last so much longer at universities than at major corporations then? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's weird. I mean, because I probably, because the, you know, the, you know, it's like, I, I think the IQ test is just too, I mean, it's just too raw, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, academics is like academics, right? People, I think always have an idea of academia is about, you know, studying and being able to do uh, while on tests. And then like, I think a lot of people look at like, oh, being a firefighter, like what does intelligence have to do with that? Of course, you, as you know, you know, IQ correlates with success in all fields, but probably people think, oh, for policemen, firefighters, whatever, there must be some other mm -hmm. skill. Uh, you can measure. Um, and the universities, you know, are sort of immune because they're, you know, so left wing and they can, you know, and they, you know, they, they obscure it. They don't say it's just a standardized test. It's also, uh, um, it's also, you know, grades, but then they also like always have been practicing affirmative action. So, you know, they can, they can get their, you know, they can get their, uh, uh, they can get their, um, anyways, they can, you know, get the, uh, the, uh, makeup of the student body that they want or something close to it. Uh, well, you know, I think like business is just trying to, do their, you know, just, they're just trying to do business. They're not, you know, they're not as sort of sophisticated and have these ways of coming up with justifications and getting around things. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of going out the, it's sort of, it's certainly being used less. I just saw, I mean, Caltech got rid of the SA. I mean, California is really bad. Um, the schools there, I think that like, you know, I think that you'll see competition within universities, you know, it's not a centralized system. So people get rid of civil, you know, they, roll back something in civil rights law, they say, oh, uh, Berkeley is still crazy. And it's like, yes, Berkeley is crazy. But, you know, I have faith over time if, you know, there's schools in Texas or Georgia and they use standardized tests and Berkeley is just picking crazy people who can't produce anything and, you know, sue you as soon as you hire them. Uh, you know, I think in the long run, that's going to have a positive effect. There's going to be a selection there. Yeah. As a, as a brief aside, um, tell us about your... Um expectation of the likely effect of the ruling on the Harvard versus Asians case. Harvard versus Asians. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's good. You see these reporting and uh, you know, uh, Aaron Sabarium has been doing for Washington free mm. weekend about like, you know, corporations getting worried. And even though it doesn't directly apply to corporations, it's not exactly that, you know, part of law. Um, I think people take it as a hint of where the Supreme court is going now. You know, every court decision is just sort of setting up the next sort of, you know, battle of interpretations. So right now, you know, I think, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, but, you know, after Trump was in office, the majority of federal judges had been appointed by Republicans. I don't know if Democrats have made up that difference uh, yet. Um, but so yeah, the conservatives have the Supreme Court um, and they have, you know, parity or close to parity in the, um, in the judiciary more generally. Um, and so the effect is going to be, you know, it's going to be, I think, the result of the, you know, the um, the impact of the 2024 election. It's whether we're going to, you know, the judges, the next Supreme Court justice and the, you know, the circuit court judges are going to be appointed either by a Republican or a Democrat, and they're going to be confirmed by a Republican or a Democratic uh, Senate. Um, and you can potentially go very far. So, I, you know, I think that, you know, I think that like the next, you know, the, the universities are going to try to get around it. That could be itself subject to a lawsuit. What happens in that lawsuit, you know, depends on, uh, you know, who, who the judge is. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a good thing. I mean, it's good to like always keep them sort of, uh, 
you know, it's like a battle. It's like you fired like, you know, a huge artillery barrage and they're like, you know, scrambling. But like, if the next guy comes in, it's not fire, going to fire them again, you know, they'll regroup and they'll do something else. If you, the next time, you know, you win and you start, you know, firing at them again, you could, you know, sort of wipe them out and you can change these institutions. Uh, so it's like a sort of a, you know, it's, it's good. It's, but it's, you know, sort of a boring answer that it's going to be the results of elections that determine how much this matters. Yes. And, uh, over the over the course of the uh, decades uh, succeeding the original Civil Rights Act, which which do you think was the most important subsequent change that really set in motion what we know as uh, wokeness? Uh, the the one that set in motion uh, wokeness. Um... You know, the you know, I think you have to differentiate the race and gender stuff. I think mm. the disparate impact standard, just because it's so all encompassing. I mean, actually, you know what? No, I, I'll I'll take that back because I think the it it did have probably like that's probably the worst thing for like American competence in the private or public sectors. Uh, but I think harassment law, um, the idea that like discrimination meant you could make uh, uh you know, uh, if if black people were uncomfortable or women were uncomfortable, um, they could potentially sue you. They can get punitive damages for that. As far as shaping the culture, I think that's the most direct influence. Um, because you see, like you see, sort of. There's been a sociology literature on what happened to the HR industry and the HR industry, you know, has to come along and say, okay, like you can't tell these jokes. You have to have these rules around dating. You have to, you know, be extra sensitive and it leads to like these zero tolerance policies in the workplace. It really takes off in the 1990s where like, you know, the corporation is starting to known as something that's like HR controlled and PC. The Civil Rights Act of 1991 creates punitive damages. It's 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 like at the exact moment, and you can see the sexual harassment cases. I have a chart where they go up mm. after the Civil Rights Act of 1991. Uh, so if you just want direct influence on culture, I think probably harassment law. If you want like the most on like American competence and ingenuity and economic, you know, impact, uh, probably the disparate impact standard is most important. So in the um, in the introduction to your book, you argue strongly against some of the. Uh, other commentators in this discussion around wokeness who've emphasized um, ideology or the philosophical, let's suppose it philosophical origins of wokeness. Why do you think they're wrong? Yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, you sort of have to establish the the causation, right? I mean, it's like, you know, Adorno and, you know, uh, these other people, um, you know, they, like they wrote something, some people listen to them, you know, are they, do they explain American society in 2023? Maybe, but like, you know, there's usually, it's usually, there aren't much, many attempts to actually prove this, um, you know? And so you, it's like, it's like a plausible story. Um, but it seems to me much more plausible that like the power of government um, and financial incentives uh, working over the decades and shaping institutions um, is going to have more of an impact. So, you know, people who want to stress the ideas and their impact, I don't think they're completely wrong. I think that they definitely uh, do matter. Um, I just think that this is primarily a, a political story. Um, and then you could say, well, the people who enacted the original policies were motivated by ideas. Yeah, fair enough. Sometimes they were. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they it was completely unintended consequences. Uh, like when Nixon uh, uh, established affirmative action for contractors, they were you know they they weren't Nixon wasn't woke at all. I mean, it was just sort of something that happened. Um, or sometimes they were you know government officials not paying attention and just deferring to you know the civil rights activists um, uh, or whoever. Uh, so I think that like you know the. The market for like philosophical explanations is sort of saturated. Like that's like everywhere. Um, while like I, you know, I don't think anyone's done a really good job. I mean, some people have in like certain aspects. Like I think you know, I cite some of them, like Gail Harriot and Eugene Volokh, uh, showing in like harassment law and disparate how it matters. I don't think many people have like 
put the entire picture together and say, this is how you get cultural change. And this is a general theory um, of cultural change. Um, so, you know, seeing that market was sort of lacking was what made me write the book. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the, uh, the debate was calling out for a, for a book emphasizing this aspect of the yeah. uh, causes of wokeness, even if it wasn't the only contributing fact. I mean, the, the language that we're all now used to terms like microaggression and people of color and, and, uh, you know, uh, all the, all the various pieces of jargon that are so lamentable that they, they weren't coined by bureaucrats, but they were, they were coined by academics Yeah, and then they kind of seeped out of academia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I, the one way I put it in somewhere in the book is uh, there's a pipeline, a civil rights law is the pipeline between crazy ideas in academia and, uh, governance. And even the people of color, like who is a person of color, that was determined by federal government. I mean, that was determined by the federal government, the Hispanic category, the Asian American Pacific Islander category. These created, these existed in government, um, in government documents before they existed in books, you know, using Google engrams. And you could see they take off after, you know, government, after government classifies people this way. So then people come along and they say, people of color, I have this, you know, Marxist, you know, a, a critical race philosophy or critical race theory or something. But like even the categories they're using, their brain have been so shaped by thinking of, you know, white people are this Hispanic, then there's Hispanics, and then there's Asians, right? That's not a natural sort of grouping, right? Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, that sort of just influences how they're thinking. So this thing, this, this, these things are always sort of interacting with one another. I just, yeah, think that the sort of government story of how these things are constructed is just, you know, uh, it's a story that's been undertold. So um, could you talk more specifically about this pipeline idea? Then uh, what's the what's the sort of causal process? Yeah. So you have the disparate impact standard, right? Uh, which is established in law, which look, as Gail Harriot points out, everything has a disparate impact. If you want people to come on time, if you want to check for criminal records, if you want to do interviews, evaluations, there's nothing that doesn't have a disparate impact on uh, some group. So like, obviously government can't ban everything. It doesn't go after everyone for everything all the time. So 99.9% .9 of things that have a disparate impact um, are not going to get noticed. Now, once in a while, you'll see a media campaign pop up and this will be, you know, because journalists are interested in it, because academics or activists are interested in it. They'll say, oh, it's racist to have, you know, criminal background checks or something like that. You know, you could sit there for 40 years and the government can never have a problem with that. And then at some point it becomes illegal under civil rights law because of the disparate impact doctrine. Uh, during uh, COVID, um, you know, civil rights law, it's funny because some states wanted to not have mask mandates. Um, it was actually about, uh, it, it, you know, the government was in started investigating. I don't know if they actually, I don't remember if they actually, um, under the Biden administration, they actually like tried to stop them, but there was at least an investigation and like, well, blacks and Hispanics can, you know, be hurt more by COVID. Are you, are you really, you know, defending their civil rights? And then kids with disabilities, I think was actually the legal hook because there's a whole thing of disability law that sort of, that works similarly to this stuff. Um, and so like, you know, I call it the skeleton key of the left, right? It's like, everything has a disparate impact. What do they happen to dislike? They dislike IQ tests. They don't dislike college colleges, right? So even though having a college degree has a disparate impact, uh, whites have higher rates of college completion than blacks and especially Hispanics who are even lower than blacks in college completion rates. Um, that's never been a problem and it probably never will be a problem, but IQ tests, you know, are. Uh, and so, well, yeah, why there's do you just, think that is? I mean, this is, it's just like, you know, it's just, there's some psychological thing where the IQ test, you know, at least I think the SAT is maybe, you know, at least theoretically, like education can can help with it. Like, I think people do think that while IQ tests have always sort of been known to get at something more innate or more that's, you know, harder to change. 
Um, and so, yeah, leftists dislike IQ tests. And then the SAT, the role of the SAT, you know, it, it, it's one step removed. It's like the SAT is part of the college admissions process. And then they're judging you actually on the degree where you've been through this, you know, four years of sort of, a, uh, you know, sort of big socialization and, you know, propagandized too. Um, and so, yeah, like every one of these things requires like, why do liberals care about this now, but they don't care about that requires like a psychological, you know, explanation. Maybe you know, there's a more consistent ideological explanation, but the point is whatever they happen to care about or think about at the moment, uh, they can use civil rights law to sort of affect change. So one of the, um, points on which I felt your book was lacking, although it was overall very good was, mm. um, why things really start to change so dramatically around 2012 when what we call the Great Awakening began. Uh, do you want to explain why it took, you know, another another few decades or at least a, a, two decades from the early 1990s for the Great Awakening to arise? Yeah, I mean, I don't focus on that too much because one thing I do say is that, like, I think that a lot of the um, things that people think are new from the Great Awakening um, are not that new. Like, you know, I was, I was, you know, when I wrote this book, I was surprised that, you know, people treat this stuff like, oh, standardized tests are racist. Like when I see that and like people treat this, like, I'm, I'm like surprised that people are still shocked by this because there's lawsuits in the 1970s mm. over this. Right. And like, people just still think it's a new thing. So part of it is like a lot of this stuff is superficial. You look, you look at what like Ibram Kendi wants and like his ideas, everything that has a disparity is racist. People treat that as some new development. It's not right. So part of it is like, maybe, you know, we've been exaggerating a little bit. How much change with the Great Awakening? Now, I think some things, you know, have changed. Obviously, you know, the culture does uh, shift. Uh, you know, I really like the, um, you know, I, I think the Twitter explanation is probably the best one. I mean, Twitter really takes off around 2011. It lines up pretty nicely with um, uh, the Great Awakening. Now, David Rosado has some uh, uh, analysis where he shows that it takes off, like, it, you know, it takes off in all these countries, maybe even before the U.S. or around the same time as the U.S. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd like to see more confirmation of that. That's a very interesting theory. So there might be something else going on. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, Scott Alexander has a good post. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's about the uh, uh, sort of he saw the Tumblr wars come into like the government in real time. So he saw like these discussions, these crazy women were having on Tumblr, and then it went to the, um, it went to like, you know government policy um, during the Obama administration. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not completely satisfying because, well, maybe it is satisfying because we really have the internet taking off and maybe it was just, maybe it was just, maybe it was just the internet. I mean, maybe it was really just social media um, influencing people. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do think I remember on the, um, on the, you know, the Floyd riots, I remember the first one of these was the Trayvon Martin case. Mm. I don't know. This was like, and this was shocking at the time. This was like, I was in law school at the time and the ACLU was going to like have a protest in favor of like, uh, like charging Zimmerman or like, uh, defending Trayvon Martin. And this was still shocking at the time. Somebody, you know, it became like sort of a, 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 uh, uh, you know, we have like an email, um, we have like an email chain for like the entire law school. And one guy actually is like, what's the ACLU doing? Now, nobody would be surprised by the ACLU, uh, doing this today. For a while, you had this guy, Sean King on Twitter. I don't know if he's even still there. Or he blocked me or I blocked him. I don't know. I don't see him anymore. Uh, but he um, would just like take videos and there would be like 
a black man fighting with a police officer and he just like tell the narrative oh this black man was just walking his dog and the police started beating him and we don't know what happened right and like you know these videos like we started having like cheap phones where everyone was being video all the time and like because liberals were in control of twitter and like people were sort of you know they were still sort of naive um they didn't see how like this stuff was bs over and over again you know it would lead to like craziness and the cities would burn down now you have a few things you have like you know you have the biggest thing is musk buying twitter um and then you have just people like sort of you know they've seen how often this stuff is bs and how dangerous this stuff is and so like you know we're not we're not seeing as many you know riots you know who knows it's only been you know, three years um but you know at least since floyd we haven't seen another another situation like that while before it was like every two years it was like we had a decade where like every two three years the american cities would erupt now they would they would interrupt now they did erupt in the 19, 1960s and 1970s too over the same things like mm. intercounter between black men and the police so it's you know it's hard to like explain all of this <laughs> you know it's hard to explain everything you just try to do what you can yeah i mean uh i remember a uh, good article i think it was by musa al ghabi in which he traced the intellectual origins of, of various key woke concepts and consistent with what you were saying, uh, identifies their origins in, you know, obscure academic books from the seventies uh, and eighties. Um, so as you say, a lot of this stuff isn't particularly new. However, I do think that there's an un unambiguous inflection point around 2012, which is visible of course, in the, mm. in the, in the, in the Goldberg Rosado, hockey stick curve of mentions yeah. of woke. Yeah, that's right. it's called it's called the origins of woke, not the, all the developments of woke up until the, <laughs> the present day. So yeah, you could you could write a whole book on just what happened. Around, but I mean, yeah, from a from a social out. science standpoint, one someone in your position does need to at least consider that um, point because you know from a, from a causality perspective, if if some if the if the main thing that people notice that you want to explain comes two decades after the, the proposed explanation that someone might not be satisfied yeah although i mean i i don't think well again i mean i think that um i think that we were we were woke in 2005 we just didn't have ibram kendi you know shoved in our faces to the same extent right i mean we still had like you know, it, it, corporate America was, you know, sort of the zero tolerance policy, the joke about how, like, you know, you know, you could see the jokes in like Saturday Night Live in the 1990s and 2000s, like, oh, is it sexual harassment? If you're handsome, you probably seen that, um, you probably seen that uh, uh, skit. Um, or get, if you haven't, like, it's like a sexual harassment video. The guy hits on a w woman. She says, get away from me. But then the other one, it's not sexual harassment. What's the difference? Oh, this guy's handsome. <laughs> like, so this was like in the mid 2000s. This was like understood that this is how, you know, um, this is how corporate America was. And this was because of the laws. So, yeah, I mean, there was a but cultural, it's... there was cultural shift, but also at the same time, like, you can't, you know, you've, you've had to racial balance and be, you know, walk on eggshells in this country and all kinds of different contexts for a very long time. But I mean, there's various other indicators that seem to shift abruptly around 2012, like the attitudes to um, the reason for the black-white disparity among white Democrats suddenly become substantially uh, shifted in toward the uh, it's the fault of discrimination end of the scale. Um, as I think yeah. Zach Goldberg has documented, then there's the you know, speaker disinvitations at colleges and cancellations or attempted cancellations of people in general. I mean, I think cancel culture really explodes yeah. around 2012 and even more so in the late 2010s. And those, those developments do seem to require 
a you know quite substantial explanation. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think you know it's it's there. It's it's important. Um, you know, I wish somebody would write an entire. You know, I wish somebody would write an entire book on what happened around. You know, we're explaining the Great Awakening. I think we have a you know an under sort of. Uh, we have a you know the, the market needs more you know like social science good causal explanation for these things. Yeah, I mean, un- undoubtedly that you're you're correct that um, law is crucial and almost certainly a necessary condition. For- yeah, although although you, you could the um the a lot of the uh, the the campus culture around rape and the trans stuff that's actually you could probably make like a mini case that that's actually in law. A lot of these statistics that said you know twenty five percent of women are being sexually assaulted in college or whatever they came from like the government commissioning surveys, staffing it with these um you know I tell the story in the book uh, staffing it with these um, you know feminist and left wing ideologues. The government goes and tells like universities. You have to have more Title IX coordinators. You have to do X, Y, Z, and we have this crazy panic about you know rape um, and you know sexual assault and patriarchy. So the, you know even there, there's like a, a you know there's there is a legal explanation for that aspect of it. Yeah, there um, was a letter, dear colleague, letter sent. Was it 2011? It was there were there were several dear colleagues right. letter yeah letter sent um, around that time. Um, and yeah, they had I mean they had a major imp- impact. I mean they you could see the staffing of the bureaucracy. There were stories on this and like. You know, the, the campus rape tribunals, we didn't have them in the 2000s and we didn't have them during the Trump administration either because the Trump administration yeah. withdrew, the, withdrew those things. Um, so it's like, it's like, you know, clearly like sort of it changed, you know, how, how people, young people have sex. I mean, they were, they were, there was a reign of terror there for a little while. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think in terms of uh, explaining uh, the, the explosion in, around 2012 that occurred in the context of a, of a, civil rights regime that had built up over several pre- previous decades that the twitter social media must be uh yeah a central and then you're seeing the other direction too with uh, the conservative boycotts all these stories about conservative mm. boycotts starting to work so you yeah you see I, twitter i don't think you could i don't know i'm addicted to it i think you're probably addicted to it too i mean i'm on it an ungodly amount of time so whatever's happening on twitter is influencing my brain i think a lot of journalists and activists and young people are the same way but it's, it's interesting on twitter how uh at least um, in my experience, things do seem to shift quite quickly to extremes on on particular issues, and in a way that they might not in in a, in the media environment that prevailed before Twitter, when it was just newspapers and blogs and things. And it seems plausible that you know, all these various activists from academia and and elsewhere signed up to Twitter and then suddenly discovered that they were all in the same place and they can all coordinate and share their yeah. uh, slightly kooky ideas with one another. And then the the, the you know the, the centrists or the moderates were were sidelined in favor of the most extreme voices who you know standing up for social justice more than anyone else at the time yeah yeah so you have this you have these internal dynamics on the left you have these dynamics of the culture more generally even on the right you know i think the populism has benefited a lot from uh social media just like you know arguments that are easy to make that are more tribal um are really just having a bigger impact and you can see this in the last yeah, yeah, think, few yeah. years it's changed all our all our brains like p- people with very extreme policy views often have, especially when they're somewhat niche policy views, often have a higher IQ and they're probably attracted to Twitter um, as a discussion platform. Um, although I'm not sure that the extreme woke people do have a high IQ. I suspect they have a lower IQ. I, I don't think, I, 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 yeah, I, I tend not to think, I mean, it probably attracts like some high IQ, but I think like if Substack probably attracts higher IQ on average than Twitter. Twitter has, I, I see the comments to my stuff on Twitter and Substack and there's no, 
you know, there's no comparison. The Substack has, you know, much, much higher IQ. No, no uh, I, so I certainly I think, wouldn't dispute that Substack's uh, attracts the. Yeah. But in general, I think that the people. people into Twitter, like compared to what? Compared to blogs or like going to a think tank lecture? Like, I think that like most of the previous politics was probably closer to Substack um, as far as like being selected for higher IQ. And maybe like the people on Twitter are like 110, right? They're not 90 or, or whatever. You know, they're 110, but like those people are sort of dumbing down the discourse because in the golden days of blogging um it was probably like more like a 115 or 120 conversation you know that, the, those are good points i just meant that uh yeah before twitter um policy wonks and and others would congregate at yeah let's say think tanks and newspapers and so on there was probably a certain amount of gatekeeping of people with yeah you know like hardline communists and you know white nationalist people yeah very unusual views whereas on twitter those people have have much freer reign to influence their um, co-partisans. Yeah. And when did, when did Elon even buy Twitter? I mean, how long has it been? Has, has it even been a, a year since he took control? How long has it been? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, no, I, oh yeah, I remember this because it was part of the, um, the Salem center forecasting tournament. And so it settled, uh, there. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been, um, like, it's been like six months, I think. Right. It's yeah. I mean, whatever, right. it feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> it feels like so much has changed. You're not, you're not convinced, are you, that corporations had played a sort of self-interested role in the development of wokeness. No, I, I, I talked to, so Vivek's woke, uh, Roman Swabi's woke ink, right. and I wrote a review that was harsher that, and then we became, you know, sort of friends on that basis. And he accepted a lot of my arguments to his credit. Yeah. It's too much of a, um, this is the same as the Marxist argument about corporation. It, it, there's a collective action problem, right? It's like one corporation is not going to create wokeness. 10 corporations are not going to create wokeness. So even if that was their plan, like it's, you know, it's hard to see how there would be an incentive to act. They would all be, you know, doing their own thing. I think you're, you're probably right overall that they weren't the most important contributor, but I mean, there's, there's, um, there's things like, you know, journalist uh, Lee Fang uncovered mm. cases where corporations bribed woke activists to portray policies that benefited them as, as actually beneficial to communities of color. Mm. And, you know, like businesses will, will, uh, come out with a, with a new sort of woke campaign at around the time they're being investigated for a tax scandal or something like that. You know, like yeah. the same way that Kevin Spacey said, I'm, I'm gay when he got in, yeah. in, in trouble with that. Um, news when he was accused of uh, sexual harassment or whatever it was. Yeah. That strikes me as true in a sense. I mean, would, would, the, would it be made sense in that case to, uh, you're just, so that theory is just corporations are you know, using woke, uh, in their self-interest, you know, if it's in their financial interest, when the opportunities come up. Right. So that seems to be like a different theory than, you know, corporations are behind woke, right. It seems like anyone is going to use woke for their financial. It's, it's like saying politicians created woke. Yeah. I mean, you know, anyone like, you know, professors created, yeah, everyone like in the incentive structure mm -hmm. is going to, is going to act in a way consistent with their interests. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my sub articles, I argued that wokeness could be seen as a bootleg Baptist coalition. With, yeah, the, with like everything yeah yeah exactly. well, like a lot of things i guess but in this case with work with the activists as the as the baptists and the corporations the bootleggers mm. all right well um what about um lgbt that seems to be s somewhat different in its um causal origins than a sex and particularly race mm -hmm. where did where did trans in particular come from 
it's so interesting because this is like, you know, I say there's no innovation in civil rights law, uh, you know, very little, especially on race issues. The 1960s discussions and the 2020 discussions on, you know, the the, the problems of uh, uh, urban blacks, there's just, I mean, it's the exact same. It's really like amazing how little has changed. Uh, on women, you do have like some development, although it's not, you know, it's, it, you know, it's sort of an intermediate thing. But then like the LGBT, I mean, this doesn't exist as like a civil rights category and now becomes, you know, huge. So like in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, it's, it's a, it's a very big change. Even my, when I wrote a recent essay on like looking at uh, music and comparing it to the last 20 years, a lot hasn't changed, but the, uh, you know, the acceptance of homosexuality um, is just, uh, you know, very different. Um, you know, I don't think there's a good, you know, I don't think it's as traceable. Um, I do think that there are, you know, there is a guy, uh, I think leading is Leo Sepp here who, you know, makes, makes an argument and it wasn't my focus of my books. So I didn't think about it or go into it that much. Um, but he does make an interesting argument that there was like all these anti-bullying campaigns. Um, anti-bullying led to like anti-LGBT bullying, which led to like the schools being obsessed with um, uh, LGBTQ issues, right? Um, and so there, you know, there potentially is like some, you know, like the government is powerful and it's doing all kinds of things all the time. And so it's like, it's hard to trace and like, just like the culture is, right? The culture is doing its own thing and the government is doing its own thing too. Um yeah, I don't think it's as clean as what I, I could show disparate impact came from government first. I can show that a racial system of racial classifications came from government first. I can show that harassment law uh, led to concerns over lawsuits and PR. I could show that, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty strong evidence. Yeah, I, I, if I had to guess or had to just make a conclusion about LGBT, maybe you could find aspects of that there. But I think it, it's closer to a purely cultural phenomenon um, so you, than the so other civil rights stuff. You can see that the people emphasizing the sort of ideological philosophy philosophical uh element it here might, would, would it might not even be psycho philosophical it might be more like something hormones it might be something in the water right it might be something emotionally that happens to your brain when you have exposure to social media and the internet right so the philosophy still might not be important it might just latch on to like these broader historical factors but you know maybe maybe it is too i don't know so so the increase in the number of people calling themselves transgender and non-binary could be due to an interaction between social media and uh, other other yeah. factors in the in the society at the, at the time. Yeah, something like I, I don't know, like you spend a lot of time on the internet. It's very addictive. You don't develop social skills. You become weird. You don't develop like normal heterosexual relations. You get on the internet. And, you know, you see this, uh, I could be a woman, right? Or I could be a man. Um, or like women, you know, the, the the female to male is more common these days. And so you can imagine just like there's no script of like how to proceed, you know, like, you know, you look at the wokeness stuff about like how men approach women. There's all the sexual harassment stuff. Men then don't approach women. But at the same time, there are men who actually are predatory and like sort of scary if you actually go out there in the world. And so maybe, you know, women like, you know, they're sort of their brains break. They just, you know, puberty and uh, growing up has always been sort of scary and it's just become more scary or at least more uncertain like the scripts are like uns you're unsure what to do um and that could potentially lead to you know these new identities these new ways of seeking uh validation yeah i mean it's really hard to disentangle all that some i will people, say that i think that some people argue that the feminine the wave of feminism i can't remember which one it was because i can't keep up with them that that started denying that men and women were fundamentally different and started asserting that and even you know even psychologically even 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 though physiologically they somehow were the same um laid the groundwork for trans 
by you know opening up the possibility that anyone could be a member of either sex yeah in the book i almost argue the exact opposite it's like the blank slateism is completely inconsistent with trans i see these trans you know uh these sometimes these uh male to female and they're like you know, I just played with dolls. I had this female braid. It's like, wait, there's a platonic ideal of a female brain, you know, that you mm -hmm. happen to have in your head. So to me, it was almost, uh, it was almost the opposite. It's, uh, incoherent. You know, I do, you know, as far as like, I had a friend I was talking to once. I was like, you know, this stuff is crazy. Like, you know, 30% or 40% of young women or whatever are you know, considering themselves bodies. Like, is that crazy or is it just honest? <laughs> it's like, you know, there's a stereotype that like all women are actually, you know, bisexual. So maybe it's just like gay rights, like remove the stigma. Actually, a lot of girls do like other girls. Um, you know, that's consistent because the male homosexual numbers haven't gone up that much. And the trans is still a pretty relatively small phenomenon in the grand scheme of things. So maybe maybe we're, we get so freaked out by that 35% women bisexuality number that's like throwing off everything. And maybe that's just like, hey, wait, maybe they actually are just bisexual. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good point you made about um, how wokeness as a, as a general phenomenon isn't consistently blank slatist. As you just mentioned, on the issue of trans, it would seem to be genetically determinist. I, yeah. The trans people have... Right. In, in a very like specific, like I saw this guy, there was a guy like at early, in the early days of the trans craziness, this was maybe 10 years ago or so. There was a guy named, uh, I think his name is Chris Beck. And then he changed it to Kristen Beck. He was like a Navy SEALs, uh, you know, uh, some, some like big bulky guy. I don't know if he's still around or you know what he or she or whatever is doing, but like CNN had a documentary and he was like, um, sorry, I'm misgendering him. I hope your audience doesn't, doesn't mind. Um, I'll use she, you know, I'll, I'll be in case there's a, I, I will make it all fresh. So she is, is we like, want to get um, <laughs> we want at least want to avoid that. So she is like, you know, this uh, Beck person, uh, is like, I would play with dolls and I would hide in my room and I would do this and that. It's like, and like, but then I became a Navy SEAL because I like wanted to like go to Sarah. They interviewed like all these people in his life, like his family members and friends. Like we never saw any of it. I'm just so skeptical that like, you know, was when this person was growing up that they had any kind of these tendencies. I was just, I just came away like, okay, this person became a Navy SEAL. Nobody in his life saw anything. Okay. You can develop a story where he's like, uh, you know, she was hiding it and then she was able to become herself later. But yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, I just don't buy it. Well, my understanding is that the, there are several different types of trans and they have very different psychological characteristics and they express yeah. their trans at different ages. Like, yeah. and, and that, that would be an example of the autogynephilic category, which tends yeah, to yeah. manifest much later in, in, in a person's life and tends to be associated exactly. with high IQ and masculinity. Weirdly enough. Um, in the case of the trans, um, phenomenon and sorry the lgbt phenomenon corporations really have embraced that wholeheartedly and it's hard to explain that from a legal perspective is it not i mean most large companies have you know a pride logo uh during yeah. pride month and and uh, they want you to know yeah. they really really care about the, the sexual orientation and gender identity of their employees and so on yeah yeah this is you know this is sort of the why is everything liberal uh essay um and also i think you know gays seem particularly you know they're just a culture now of sort of mobilization around uh uh sexual identity it is partly it is partly law i you know and i bet like i don't i haven't looked much at state law but i bet like the state laws of like the big corp where the big corporations operate like california new york were probably ahead of the federal even the federal government uh on this stuff so i wouldn't be surprised if like you know a lot of this was um you know a way to you know a, a sort of a legal thing uh yeah you're you're right it's it seems there's 
you know, an unnatural sort of, uh, you know, just, but, but, it, but, it, but it hasn't been there. It hasn't proven Lindy, right. It hasn't proven for that long. So like the, everyone turning their, uh, a corporation, you know, into a rainbow, you know, that's like, you know, four or five years old. And even now it seems to be not as extreme. There's like all these stories that it's like, it's sort of on the downs, downslope. So, you know, it'll be a different story if it's still here in 10 years. I think, you know, my view of civil rights law is of like, there's all these cultural changes, but when you change the law, that's when you make it permanent. That's when you entrench mm. it, right? Mm. Um, if you didn't have any like laws on LGBT or anything, like maybe they go crazy for a few years with pride logos, but like 10, 15 years down the line, you know, that stuff, it's, they still wouldn't be doing it. They'd be doing what makes business sense or what is consistent with like good PR, given the views of the general of the population, mm. not just left-wing extremists. Um, and so, yeah, that's another, that's a general point about why I don't focus on, you know, LGB stuff more generally, because we don't know, you know, we've had like 10 years of craziness while I look at the race and the sex stuff and I see continue continuity between the 1960s all the way. So you have like 65, 65 years or so, 60 years, whatever, of like mostly doing the same thing. You know, that to me is interesting. If the LGBT is still here uh, 20 years from now, uh, maybe you could, you know, write a similar book on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I do think that, uh, a self-interest story is pretty compelling in the case of large corporations and LGBT and also the military. I don't know if you've read the essay by Glenn Greenwald from a few years ago where he basically argues that the reason that the U.S. military became so fascinated by LGBT, at least uh, from what one can infer um, in its um, you know, rhetoric and um, propaganda is the, is basically as a way to get liberal voters to support an interventionist yeah. foreign policy. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not surprised that it doesn't even have to be that far because I watch sometimes the, I see on the congressional hearings, they'll go and what like these Democratic uh, congresswomen and men sometimes really care about is like diversity of the military. So I, I remember there, like the military has like traditionally pushed back on a lot of this stuff. You know, it's conservative guys with high testosterone. So like women in the military used to be pretty strongly resisted. Um, you know, it, like the generals, the top officials are political appointees. And so as, as Democrats care more about gender, you know, issues and racial integration and LGBT. Yeah. I mean, the military is going to go along with it. I mean, I think historically, like, I don't think it's just like, I, I think Greenwald, I mean, if he's focused on liberal voters, I don't think it's necessarily liberal voters. It's more like more direct than that. It's like the people appointing them and the people you know, in Congress giving them their budgets. Yeah, I mean, there was a similar argument made by a European commentator, Lily Lynch. She, in, a, in, a, in an unheard essay, she basically argued that NATO, the US, succeeded in winning over the left in Western Europe, which was traditionally very hostile to NATO by using a lot of feminist and cosmopolitan rhetoric about NATO's role in the world, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I you know, I've, I, I buy that. I mean, I did write that article. Um, what was it called? The, the one about Russia. You remember, you remember this? Yeah. Russia. Yeah. Why they hate Satan in the liberal. American yeah. Russia. Oh, Russia is a great Satan in the liberal. Yeah. Thank you. For, <laughs> very good. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's right. Um, I think that's the irrational sort of hostility towards uh, Russia. At the same time, like, I do think like conservatives or people like Glenn Greenwald who are not conservatives, but sort of aligned with populists and right wingers on these issues uh, c can exaggerate that. Someone, you know, pointed out to me like, okay, but the big sanctions on Russia did not come after the LGBT laws. They actually came after Russia seized Crimea uh and annexed it right so i do think that like a lot of the reaction to um is you know to uh sort of russia and a lot of the american foreign policy is to actual 
geopolitics, even though it gets like blown up in sort of the liberal imagination. Uh, but then you have like countries like Hungary and Poland and, you know, they can, they can like be socially conservative in a lot of ways. Um, but like, you know, they're not invading their neighbors, so they're not getting bad press like Russia. So like, yeah, I do think like sometimes this is used to say, oh, this is the only reason they hate Russia. And like, they can sort of look away from like, actually, you know, the bigger geopolitical well, yeah, issues. I think, I think Greenwald, Greenwald would argue that the, the U.S. doesn't, the U.S. foreign policy establishment doesn't hate Russia because of its um, homophobic laws, but for you know, geopolitical reasons, as evidenced in the fact that they happy to be friends with the Saudis and other authoritarian regimes that don't uh, take kindly to homosexuals. Um, anyway, let's move on to um, the solutions that you put forward in the book. How, uh, what should, what should conservatives do now this book is written to dismantle the uh, woke apparatus? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy that this book is going to, no matter what, going to reach the, um, you know, the people who need to read it. I was at Yale Fred Sock uh, shortly before the book came out. I mean, people who are, you know, uh, clerking for federal judges, I mean, they're, they're following my work and they're reading the book and that's like, you know, very important. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff, the hopeful, uh, you know, the hopeful part of it, you know, uh, Caldwell at one point in his book says something like, you know, like, you know, the, it's the civil rights act that you actually need to, he doesn't say, he never actually, I look for the exact quote, he never actually says repeal the civil rights act, but he does say something like conservatives don't realize that everything, you know, they dislike will uh, require like rolling back a civil rights act or something like that. Mm. And like, I don't think you have to go that far because a lot of these innovations um, came later and they were done through executive orders and they, they were done through the courts and they could be undone the same way. So uh, as Vivek promised, Executive Order 11246, you can get rid of that, you can, uh, or you can amend that. Reagan tried to do it. I tell the story of why he didn't and why I think, you know, like why conservative politics have changed so much that you could do it now. Um, and then, you know, you could start, you could start thinking about revisiting the Griggs decision. I mean, it really, I mean, it has been, it hasn't been, like, it's funny because there's a, a case on college admissions every few years. It's just because it's what people are paying attention to. Um, but, you know, people could be paying attention to disparate impact in, in business. Uh, and so, yeah, so that would be, you know, that, that's something we need to do. Um, you also just need to like, you know, def you need to like, you also, I mean, first of all, need to also hold the line, not do any more expansions of civil rights law. Republicans used to go along with these, but they don't anymore. That's again, in my, in my chapter on uh, Republican and civil rights law. Um, and so you have to do that. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, there's an entire chart. I mean, every one of these things that I talk about was basically a series of incremental steps, sometimes the big steps, like the Griggs decision was actually a, just like one big like leap. Um, but usually, usually they're incremental steps that made it, you know, change the incentive structure for corporations and for universities um, to become more woke. And you just need to go in the other direction. And I'm, you know, happy to see it. I saw Texas, uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, just uh, ban diversity hiring in state government. Republican mm. has been governor of Texas for like 30 years. Um, they just did it, you know, a few months ago. I mean, that's, that's, I think a sign that like how asleep at the wheel these people have been and how much is actually changing because this is getting to people's, uh, you know, it's getting people's attention. So let's suppose that Trump, or if it's not Trump, whomever is the Republican uh, candidate wins the next election. What's the first thing he or she should do in office to, to, you know, to, to combat wokeness? 
you know, before we even get to that, like you need you need Republicans to win elections because I think that like you know it, there's been a general sorting of like you know uh, ideological um, you know ideological sorting, and so like Republicans are going to be way way different than Democrats. So who actually wins elections uh, matters a lot. You know, I think pretty much any Republican candidate is going to appoint the same people. I think Trump is like you know almost sure to win the Republican uh, uh, primary, but you, you know you've got to focus on electability. Um, uh, and who's going to win? And the Senate race. Well, I mean, the Senate races. Who confirms the judges? Ju uh, judges. That's also very important. Um, so you got to focus on electability there. So you've got to actually, you know, win win elections first. Um, you've got to prioritize appointing judges. I mean, McConnell and Trump worked together. They did ex they did uh, an excellent job of this uh, during the Trump administration uh, because, like, there's no set number of judges you appoint that just vacancies come up, and it depends on how fast you go. Um, and you could appoint them. So, you know, they've been doing, they've been doing good things. They've been doing the things that I would have, uh, uh, that I would have recommended. Um, and then, yeah, there's the executive orders. There's, um, one, one, two, four, six. Again, Vivek said he promised he'd do it, but you can always, uh, you can always revise that to ban affirmative action rather than, um, uh, in government contracting rather than requiring it. Um, you need the, you know, the conservative activists to sort of know what the big sort of doctrines are, disparate impact, harassment law. Uh, craft lawsuits. There's a great book that I recommend everyone read um, called The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement by Steve Tellis. Not be, not only because it tells the rise of the conservative legal movement, but it sort of explains how policy change works in the United States, like the interaction between judges, which cases they take, which cases get before before them, how like lawyers and activist organizations strategize. Liberals were doing this for a while, but then like this is the story of how conservatives caught up. And you'll actually learn a lot about how um, policy changes. Um, and so, yeah, you have the executive orders, you have just basically the courts pushing back on this stuff. Um, you can do the disparate impact. Uh, you could do a, a disparate impact repe repeal as far as how the government interprets the Civil Rights Act, rather than you, you can't just stamp a finger and do it with employment law. Uh, but you can do it um, just through the DOJ. There was talks of the Trump administration doing it um, on January 5th, uh, 2021. There was an article in the Washington Post that the DOJ was thinking about doing this. Um, next day was January 6, 2021. You know, th things, you know, got crazy. You need to be doing this in the first weeks of an administration, not the last weeks of the administration. So yeah, I mean, there's an entire chapter where what is to be done. I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of ideas. If you ever find yourself in government or on a court or clerking for a judge, you know, it's not like there won't be opportunities to push back on wokeness. You'll have almost too many. And do you think it's actually realistic that some of these changes will get implemented uh, over the next few years and that we'll see a tangible shift away from the craziness of the of the late 2010s? Yeah, yeah I mean, again, there's the, that, that chapter on Republicans and I explain like why, like I go sort of, there's these historical developments where you have this ideological sorting and you can get more extreme positions on everything. Um, Roe v. Wade, right? Abortion, right? Um, guns, right? The uh, uh, school choice issues, like conservatives are, you know, defunding public education. They're privatizing, uh, almost privatizing, and you know, arguably privatizing the uh, public education system in, in, you know, several states now. This was unthinkable five, ten years ago. Liberals are doing things that are, you know, unthinkable from uh, conservative that were unthinkable in the other direction. Um, and th this is even on minority stuff, like uh, on the things where you're in the minority on public opinion, like abortion, where if you go to a referendum, the Republicans will lose. But because they control these states like very strongly and because they're very ideological, they can still push forth abortion restrictions. Here, the public is actually on your side. 
the you know the approval for the Dobbs decision. I mean, all those conservative Supreme Court decisions tend to be unpopular. Citizens United, um, uh, the you know the Dobbs decision obviously has like cost Republicans dearly. Uh, here is like now you can do something ideological, which actually the public supports, and there's probably not going to be much pushback on it. So yes, I mean I think that like in Republican states, and if and when Republicans um, win uh, presidential elections and win over this, you know, win Congress. Uh, yeah, I think there's, you know, the time is ripe to do a lot. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, someone, I can't remember who, um, surveyed Republican lawmakers and asked them why they hadn't taken more proactive steps to dismantle affirmative action. And the, and the most common response he got was that they didn't want to appear racist in the media. That would seem to be a less uh, pressing concern now that we've Exactly. Had, for example, the Asians v. Harvard case and 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 the sort of backlash to wokeness. Yeah, yeah, this was this was in the mid nineteen nineties, and now I don't like I you know I was at a conservative event uh, a couple of years ago, and they said you know uh, uh yeah you know, they don't do stuff on you know civil rights or race issues because they're afraid of being called racist. I say no today they're a hundred times more afraid of. Tucker Carlson or conservative media uh, than they are the New York Times. You don't think the media yells at them for the abortion stuff? Like, no, the media is very, very passionate uh, about the uh, about the reproductive choice stuff, but they just care more about you know their base uh, than they do the other side. So trans issues too. They're banning trans care for minors. Mm. You think that's not driving the media crazy? It absolutely is. So they're willing to drive the media crazy. It's just the conservative activists and uh, uh, the media personalities have to sort of push them in that direction. And uh, what's your understanding of the legal basis for wokeness in other Anglosphere countries that have seen arguably similarly pronounced greater wokenings, UK, Australia, Canada? Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I obviously don't know as much as uh, all these countries as I do about the US. I did ask Eric Kaufman, you know, I said, um, I, you know, I don't, I, I get the feeling it is sort of more pronounced in the US because I asked Kaufman once, um, uh, you know, is uh, like we in the like University of California system, whenever there's like a event, like a, a you know, a, a political event, like something on abortion or like immigration, it's in the news. We'll get letters from like the administration, like taking a partisan line. We're here for you with the whole community. Sends like, like, do they do this in the UK? Do they send you letters on like live political issues, like taking a position? And well, you tell me you're, you're from the UK too. He told me no. Right. Is, uh, is that right? I'm probably not the best person to ask. Well, there was this extraordinary letter yesterday regarding um, Russell Brand. Did you see that it was going around Twitter? Well, not, but it wasn't a university. I, well, I saw from the government. Yeah, yeah. to the uh, exactly. Yeah, I did see. I did see that. But I was thinking more at the institutional level. Does Cambridge or Oxford take a position on Russell Brand, which they, you know, they sort of would in the United States? Oh uh, well, yes. The a lot of the British universities in 2020 took you know strong made strong public statements uh in um against racism and um against the deplorable state of uh policing in america and um, yeah. uh in in which they um expressed their uh, sympathy with george floyd and his family and so on so that that seems that seems a unique case right that doesn't seem like that was the the norm it was it's the norm i mean it was the norm before george floyd um in the United States. So like, do they talk about the migration crisis, for example? Do they say, uh, um, yeah, I haven't looked into it, but it'd be interesting to do so. But yeah. certainly there were a lot of very bizarre anti-racism statements. I mean, obviously not just saying we're against racism, but, you know, going into lots of detail and using all the, all the woke jargon and making, and make, you know, saying things like we need to not, own, not merely be non-racist, but an actively anti-racist institutions. I, 
<laughs> really embodying yeah. the ideological precepts of wokeness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing about the law and the other Anglo Anglosphere nations is that, like, you know, do they have wokeness law? In some ways, like more extreme because they have hate speech laws, right? Mm. Um, so you could make a wokeness law argument. Just the hate speech laws could be enough. I, I see the things that people in the UK get arrested for. It would be unthinkable in the United States, and you think, yeah, that must have an impact on culture. In the UK, there's also this uh, important piece of legislation, the Equality Act, which. I don't know a great deal about it. I'm not the person to ask about it, but I understand has some parallels with the Civil Rights Act in the US. I think it was passed in 2010, which would obviously, from a, from a causality perspective, be uh, highly favorable to your argument. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah I, but I don't know the details of, of the law. You'll have to ask Kaufman or someone who knows it better than I do. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about this, and apparently it's trying to import a lot of the, um, you know, it's still at a sort of an embryonic stage. The law is not developed, but it seems to be trying to import some of the American ideas uh, into UK. You know, somebody was a, uh, was in the South Korean government, and they were thinking about some anti-discrimination women or LGBT or something. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah we're passing your you know, things around in this sort of conservative circle in South Korea, like as a warning of what could happen. And that sort of, you know, warmed my heart of giving, you know, other countries a warning of what could happen. Okay, then. So are you optimistic about the future in the US vis-a-vis -vis this issue? I'm optimistic if the Republicans win elections. I'm not optimistic that they can actually win elections anymore. You know, I think they've gone very crazy. Um, I think the abortion issue is killing them. Um, the Democrats are doing well in uh, like these off-year elections, um, these uh, you know these special elections, which usually uh, the party out of power usually does better in those. Um, and they're going to nominate Trump. Now, some people think, like have been saying until recently, like Trump can't win. I've never thought he can't win. Um, I've always thought there's like, anyone who's the nominee has a 30, at least 30 or 40 percent uh, chance of winning. Um, but I think it is possible that the sort of the abortion issue plus the general perception that Republicans are like a Trump cult who like denies elections. I, I do think that there is a possibility um, that Republicans just lose elections, in which case there's probably not much reason to be optimistic. Although just just Twitter alone, just Twitter alone being in the hands of um, Elon Musk and, you know, who knows, like how stable the management is there. Um, but just that, you know, makes me optimistic for the culture. So, yeah, I think like big things will happen if Republicans win. Uh, if not, you know, things will continue as they are. But at least we'll have, you know, a, a more uh, free social media. Yeah, certainly the 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 boycotts against what was it um bud light and there was another major one target, yeah target was a big one yes target you guys um, have target in the uk by the way is that an international company uh i can't recall ever ever having seen it but it might be there might be a few mega stores outside of town centers uh i'm not sure but yeah those, those two boycotts were seem to seem to really encourage les autres um at least on yeah. the sort of less uh ideological end of the corporate spectrum and yeah have... it was it was funny i remember during the pride month it was so funny I, I was on twitter i was just enjoyed by this like these people would go into like twitter and start yelling i mean not twitter target and they would start yelling it's like what is this like, like it was like these people were just like their braids had broken and they'd like be ripping up like you know pride flags or like placemats or or whatever and it was just like yeah i can see how any corporation is not gonna want to deal with that these people are crazy and now that they can organize you know you can see how they can be intimidated into yeah, but, you know toning that stuff down kind of using the exact same strategy that woke activists are using just be obnoxious yeah. and and crazy and and you'll get your way yeah well, that's funny. It's just like one guy. It's like one or two crazy guys. It's like one crazy guy rather than like a protest. But that's so unpleasant that I, I imagine it makes a difference. 
Okay then. Well, thanks a lot for for joining us and for telling us about the book, which I'd recommend. You should go out and read it. Uh, what are you currently working on? Uh, I'm doing a lot of book promotion. Um, I'm working on a few essays. Um, I don't have like another book or like another big project anyway, but like a, f a few essays that I, I'm going to, I, I'll say it as a general matter. I'm trying to develop, I've done a lot of like empirical sort of, uh, you know, uh, empirical work looking at like history, trying to explain American politics. I want to develop my sort of philosophical ideas about how I see the world a little bit more in depth. So that's probably the next big project. Explain, explain why you're a libertarian. Yes, but I'm not a libertarian and like, it's not as, as simple as like, I'm a libertarian in a way, like a boring person, you know, most, not boring person, but like in a conventional way, it's like, I do have these sort of non-libertarian ideas or at least influences or instincts. And I sort of want to reconcile them because people see like these contradictions, but I, I think there is like a coherent whole there. And I want to sort of explain it to people. There's I think, I think I sort of, oh, Hananiism. Yeah, there is a Hananiaism. I think the I think smart I think like dumb people are very confused. I think smart people can sort of see whether my critics or my fans they do sort of see it. Um, but I just want to make it you know easier and more explicit for people. And you're going to be publishing those on your on your Substack newsletter. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'll look forward to them. Um, well, thanks a lot for coming on, Richard. Thanks, Noah. This was enjoyable. Thank you. <laughs>